0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have part two of a guest interview that I did with Pam Smith. For those of you who listened to the first one, we went over Pam Smith's legendary ultramarathon running career. I wanted to talk to Pam originally because... She has one of the widest reaches successfully done in the sport of ultra marathon running, in my opinion, on the women's side of the sport. So the interesting thing about ultra marathon running, for those of you who only loosely or don't follow it all, is we tend to call the sport ultra marathon running and then loop a ton of variety into that. So I've talked about this a lot in the past, but I mean, you can do a 50-kilometer road race. That's an ultra marathon. You can do a multi-day, 200-plus miler out on some remote trails, and that's also an ultramarathoner, and that's not even the extent of it all. So, it does become sort of this, uh, this, this umbrella term that refers to a lot of pretty unique disciplines that sometimes contradict one another in terms of where the skill sets that are going to make you successful on them. So I'm always interested when I bump into someone or hear about someone or follow someone who has been able to really fine-tune and be highly successful at a very wide variety of this discipline that we call ultra-marathon running. And Pam Smith is right up there near the top with you know historic wins and internationally quality times and distance covered and timed events and things like that. So I recorded a podcast just to go over her career. Another thing that makes Pam unique is she wasn't just a professional runner. She has a family and she had a full-time job while she was winning the races and competing for podium spots at the height of her career. So I outlined, or I shouldn't say I outlined, we talked about a lot of that and everything that kind of went into it with her on episode 342 of this podcast. If you're interested in that background for today's interview, the reason I had her back for part two was one of her more iconic races was the 2013 Western States 100, where it was a historically hot year. Pam Smith came back to the race after finishing near the back. So Western States has a 30 hour cutoff. And that means if you are not across that finish line at exactly 30 hours, then you don't get a completed finish registered. You don't get the belt buckle. You don't get any recognition really of completing the race. So it is like the last chance to get across that line and get yourself a finish. Pam finished near the back in just under 29 hours that year. And now Pam had been in the top 10 prior to that. So that was definitely not her best day, but she gutted it out and got it in. But the thing that makes it really interesting is she returned the next year, not only won it, So she went from the back to the very front in one year's time and also cracked the top 10 overall. She was actually ninth overall that year too. So winning the women's side of the race, ninth overall, historically hot year, really cool story behind it. I wanted to hear about how she prepared for it, how she approached the race itself, what the mindset was like going into that after the prior year and everything. Uh, that kind of went into that. And also just get some tips too, because Nicole, who actually came on and helped me co-host that one, is running Western States this year. Nicole's done Western States a number of times. She's actually been top 10 on three different occasions. And she just recently raced herself in through one of the golden ticket races to get back on that starting line this year. So we thought it'd be worthwhile to talk to Pam and find out what went into her best performance on that course. And hopefully give Nicole a little bit of a lesson in terms of what she can do in these next few months while she gets ready for that race itself. So hopefully you enjoy this interview and, and, uh, get a chance to hear a little bit more from Pam, uh, coming up on the podcast, actually, for those of you who follow the sport a little closely, or maybe even not, this race has gotten pretty popular just outside of the sport of ultra marathon is the Barclays marathon, which is just a really interesting event because, It's got a lot of characteristics of ultra running, but it's also got a lot of unique things about it where you essentially, it's really hard to get into, first of all, because there's like a limit of how many people they can have out there on these trails and a lot of people apply. So there's like a lot of different steps you have to go through. You have to like write an essay and do a whole bunch of different stuff to just get into the race. And then on top of it, it's built to be one of the more difficult races to finish. In fact, there after this year, I should say, there's only been 17 total people to finish the race. So it's a five-loop course. They call it the Barclays Marathon. It's sort of described as 100 miles, but I think everyone who's done it knows it's probably quite a bit further than that. The reason nobody knows is you cannot wear a GPS watch. In fact, they give you like a really cheap, just like standard watch, so you can tell the time and that's about it. And that's what you That's what you have. So the course isn't marked. You have to gather pages from, I think it's 10 books each loop to show that you hit certain check marks along the way. And weather can be a huge component to it. It's just a wild event. So you, a lot of years, nobody finishes it's, it's like exciting when one person does this year was historic in the sense that three people finished it. One of those people, John Kelly finished for the second time. In fact, he was the last person to finish it. He finished in 2017. So John's coming on the podcast to talk about just the Barclays marathon, his experience with that type of racing, which has a pretty big orienteering component to it, as you may probably imagined as I described how that kind of plays out. I want to hear like what he's doing, what his background is like in terms of getting him ready for something like that. And just his view on everything played out the day. He was actually the second finisher on that day. Again, like I said, uh, the last finisher before this year, and now is a two-time Barclays finisher, which is uh, legendary. So it'll be fun to talk to John, get a little bit of perspective on that side of ultra marathon running. Also, for those of you who like the nutrition type topics, I am currently scheduling a podcast with Amy Berger. Amy's been on the podcast a long time ago. She's interesting to me in the terms that she is a dietitian and also is really knowledgeable of low-carb ketogenic diets. She's very open-minded about like the ways to construct those though. So I want to get a feel for her and what she's seeing within that space in terms of just different ways that tend to be more successful for people in terms of programming these sort of things, what variants she makes with them when it comes to folks who have more of an active lifestyle versus maybe a little more of a sedentary lifestyle and they're looking for it for therapeutic reasons and things like that. And just catch up with seeing where where she's at and, and where the research has been. I know it's one of those things where as it gains momentum, more and more stuff gets done, more and stuff gets highlighted. So it's always fun to kind of talk to people who are like really in the weeds on that sort of stuff. Um, sort of a combination of two, the performance and nutrition side of things. This week, I'm also recording an episode with Dan Plues. I've actually mentioned that one a few episodes ago. We actually had to reschedule the recording. Uh, So it is coming. It's coming this week. So for those of you who are on the show, Patreon page, you'll probably see that one pop up there at the end of this week uh, or early next week at the very latest. And those will be some fun ones. I want to talk to Dan about a variety of things including the most recent paper that was released about low carb performance. I did a podcast episode on that, I believe episode 341, where I kind of just went over the outline of it and then gave a few thoughts on what I think it maybe shows, doesn't show. Inevitably, all these studies have limitations because you can't answer all the questions people have in one study without, you know, an endless budget and an endless amount of time. So there's always going to be limitations. There's always going to be questions that come up after there's always going to be things that people consider flawed or weak within it. So, so I just kind of went over the details of it, talked about what I thought was interesting, talked about what I thought would maybe be an interesting next step if possible, in terms of looking at that sort of a topic. Uh, but I'll be curious about Dan because Dan is, uh, he's got an age group record at Kona for triathlon. He just recently won a half iron man, he uh, has a lab in New Zealand and he works with a lot of endurance athletes, including some low carbers, and he himself follows a lower carbohydrate approach to his training and racing. So I like to talk to Dan whenever it comes to low carbohydrate performance, find out what we know, what he thinks are maybe coming down uh, in terms of some new research or some new findings that he's seeing in his lab and other things like that. So that'll be a fun chat if you're interested in that sort of thing. Before we get rolling, just a couple quick announcements. If uh, you want to support the show and get the podcast early, ad-free, you can do that by accessing episodes through the show's Patreon page and support the podcast. You can find links and details to joining the show's Patreon page by heading over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. You can also find other ways to support the show on that same URL, zachbitter.com forward slash HPO along with the full catalog of episodes. So if you want to go back and see what episodes are available that maybe are interested in you, if you're not following along uh, routinely, that's a good spot to check out the details and find out which ones you want to maybe download and throw on your your phone as you're out there working out on the weekends or in the mornings or the afternoons during the week, whenever you happen to train and need a little bit of auditory distraction from the work at hand. Uh, Also, if you are not... Uh, subscribed to the podcast, please head over there and do that. If you subscribe, it'll automatically get sent to your phone and then you'll be kept up to date when new podcasts are released. That also helps me grow the show. Great way to support along with sharing episodes you enjoy with your friends and family on social media. That goes a long way to help support the show in a non-monetary way if it is something that you are interested in. Also, if you're looking for a little bit of support with your training, you can head over to ZachBitter.com. There I have a bunch of different options for coaching, including pre-made plans. If you just want to follow my philosophy, I also have consultations you can sign up for where you can hop on a call with me and we can chat about whatever it is you want to talk about. If you've got a list of questions, if you want to ask about some of the training stuff you're doing and think that I might have some valuable input on there, those options are all available at ZachBitter.com. Finally, I have a group run in Austin that Anyone listening to this is welcome to come to, if you happen to be in Austin, whether you live here or are visiting, we meet at 9 a.m. at Metz Park. Details to that from a week-to-week basis is found on Instagram at outliersATX. So if you want to meet up and run a few miles with me, we've got a few different options there, lots of different paces. So it is an all-comers, all-welcome type of a setup group run that Sunday morning. Uh, Check that out if interested. Before we get rolling, just a quick shout out to one of the show's primary sponsors this year, LMNT Electrolytes. They are my go-to electrolyte supplement. They make a very convenient product that has these little packets that include 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Last year, I got my sweat test done and it turns out I lose 614 milligrams of electrolytes for every liter of fluid lost during a workout or throughout the day. So I'll usually mix one of those packets in about two liters of water. If I'm going out for training sessions, I'll also use their chocolate flavor sometimes in the morning with my coffee. It makes a perfect mix if I use like maybe half a packet of that, some coffee, some heavy cream hits the spot, sends me out to my morning session ready to roll. Uh, They are currently running a special for HPO podcast listeners, which is a free sample packet with any purchase. So if you go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO, you will be prompted to receive that free sample pack with your first purchase. So what that'll allow you to do is figure out First of all, if you enjoy the product, and second of all, which flavor is your favorite? My favorites right now, chocolate with that coffee in the morning and watermelon for any of my fluids that I'm drinking throughout the day or out on workouts. So if that's any help for you, those would be a good starting points in my opinion. So head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO to check out their stuff. You can also access those links in the show notes or on the show sponsor website, which is ZachBitter.com dot com forward slash HPO sponsors. Welcome back, Pam. Thank you. And I, for those of you watching the video will already know, but I also have Nicole, my wife here to, to chat. So we got a three person podcast episode for you today. And for those of you who did not listen to part one with Pam, we went over her career as an ultra marathon runner, kind of what makes her unique. Everything that went into the career, including like having a family, a career, and everything else that kind of goes alongside the actual training and racing side of the things that uh, that she was doing. So definitely go check that one out if you want that full picture, because today we're going to take some time to just dive into one of the many race results that Pam produced over her career, which was, uh, I'll let Pam confirm or deny this, but I think it was probably one of her more per- impressive performances, where in 2013, you went back to the Western States 100, which... At the time, people probably maybe would have considered the most competitive 100 miler in the world. Now it's maybe second behind UTMB, but like UTMB and Western States are like the two big ones for the most part. And you had a year prior to that where you were at the race, you had had some success at that event, but you had a rough day and finished just over an hour before the the cutoff where they don't let you finish any longer. You return the next year and you win it. So you go from like the back of the pack to winning it, and not only winning it, but finishing the top 10 overall on what was, I think, a a pretty rough year weather-wise, which I think we're going to get into a little bit of this episode. But Nicole and I are really excited, especially since she's running Western States this year, just to kind of hear more about what you did in that year to figure out how to find yourself standing at the top of the podium. And yeah, everything kind of went into the day and the preparation and everything like that.
1: Yeah, Yeah. no, I'll echo your thoughts there, Zach, because I mean, as um, a female who also has a full-time job and um, is just a super fan of Pam and all she's done, it's just exciting to chat and hear about kind of her secret sauce and how she executed on that day. So um, we're just happy to get to talk to you, Pam. Yeah, Thanks. I'm excited
2: to talk about it too. (laughs) (laughs) Always fun to relive the glory days. Yeah, let's relive
0: it. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Did did you have any goals for that day? Like going in, was there like a higher, or was there like a tiered level of like, hey, I think I could win this thing today? Was that even in the? the the mindset of the time? Yeah,
2: so um, it's really funny. Like I actually went into 2013, and as you mentioned, I had a terrible 2012. I was really fit in 2012. Um, I had placed fifth at the 100K World Championships in April of that year. It was still my PR for the 100K distance. I was just really fit, and then um, 2012 was the year that they got into a lot of snowstorms and hail, and I was just underprepared and made stupid mistakes. And so it had nothing to do with fitness, but rather execution. Like my execution on the day was just terrible. And, um, Not only was I disappointed, but I was actually a little bit embarrassed by that. You know, I always considered myself as somebody who ran smart, did things uh, in, in a good way and made good decisions on race day. And on that day, I just did not and it didn't pan out well. So, you know, my whole goal going into 2013 was that like I was going to execute everything correctly. Like I wanted to do all the things and do all the things right. And I just figured if I did that, I could run about 1830. That was the time goal I had was 1830. I never was concerned about who else was around me. I never looked at the ultra sign up list ahead of time like the competition didn't matter to me because my whole goal was just to prove that I could run that race well. Um, And so that was like kind of how I went into the race. Um, I had an idea that if I ran 1830, which is what I thought I could do, I would be in the top three. I figured like historically that's about where it would be. So, yeah, I mean, I was kind of thinking if I did my race and I executed, I'd probably be on the podium, but it wasn't like go all out. I have to win this race. Like that just was not the focus.
0: Yeah, that's always interesting because I think like for one (laughs) that mindset i think is so important because with a race like a 100 mile distance there's there's a level that i think you if you when people really analyze what they're capable of you can get semi close to knowing what you're capable of and if you try to stretch out beyond that because you think someone else is p- potentially able to do say like if you'd gone in there thinking like oh well 18 flat is what i need to win it therefore i'm going to force 18 flat then maybe things turn out a little more like the year prior but since you kind of stayed in your own uh, your own realm of what you thought was possible based on your training and fitness, you're able to kind of avoid some of those mistakes. I think a lot of times people make early on in a hundred mile race where they get chasing when it's too early and also maybe outside their, their reach.
2: Yeah. And I think I, I did actually change my focus for 2014, you know, as coming back as the reigning champion and there was a lot more pressure And I think for that race, I did, I was very concerned about winning. Like I wanted Mm. to win again. And it, it did feel a little bit more stressful. I was watching people from the get-go was like, Ooh, how fast is she going to go? Ooh, is she ahead of me? What's the splits? And I think that kind of added to the stress on the day. And ultimately I ended up fourth that year. Um, and again, I, I think some of it was kind of that mindset. So yeah, I was sort of in the perfect mindset of 2013. That was like, Nope, nothing else matters. It's just my race. And, uh, So, and unfortunately I wasn't able to kind of carry that mindset into the following year.
1: No, I, I love that you, I I agree with Zach there. I mean, I think it's so easy to get focused on what other people are doing. Right. But just really when you're, when you're executing to your best, I think, It always just works out when you are just focused on your own goals, it just seems like that is like the sweetest and then when you have success on those days it just feels like you did it for all the right reasons right which I think at the end of the day is kind of like also important is kind of like just proving that you are your best self on that day I don't know that's kind of how I've always seen it um and just curious too like how did your mindset change that day in any way as you got out onto the course because we know that it was certainly a challenging day
2: yeah so i i mean it was going to be hot and we knew that ahead of time um that it was going to be a really hot day and I, I remember uh, AJW standing at the pre-race meeting and telling people, take your pace chart and throw it out the window because it's going to be too hot today. <laughs> and I just was like, no, I think if I execute this, okay, like I can still run about the time that I was hoping to run. Um, and so I was like, I'm just I'm just going to focus on that. So like in terms of the heat, I, I didn't really try to change too much. I just had it in my mind that I would try to stay as cool as possible and keep on the like sort of the pace that I had in mind. Um, I think what sort of changed was that even though I was sort of thinking that I could run maybe a podium position, I didn't expect to get into the lead as early as I did. I took the lead over at mile 38. And I had told my husband, like, don't expect me to be in the top three until after Forest Hill. Mm. And so he was like, what are you doing? Like, why are you in the front of this race? And it was like, I don't know, like, I'm just I'm running easy. This is how it feels to to run. And I knew I wasn't going to take the lead from the get-go. That was never the plan to like lead from the beginning um, and sort of just kind of move up gradually. But I did end up taking the lead like earlier than I expected. And I think the way that like that kind of changed things was then we're, you know, you don't get quite the accurate um, splits as to how far ahead you were. And so we were always having a little bit delay, but as we were getting the splits, um, it kept finding out that, you know, they were growing. So I was getting farther and farther ahead. And so, you know, that started to to make it feel like, okay, I can calm down, just keep doing exactly what I'm doing at this point. Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually, Actually doing it right, and so um, you know that that actually was a really like reassuring feeling. When whereas I know sometimes when you're in the lead, you, you kind of have that oh oh my gosh now what like now I've got to keep it, and there's sort of this extra pressure. But um, fortunately, it was kind of like no, I, I it actually allowed me to calm down a little bit.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about because there's definitely a mental shift that takes place. I think when you're in a position where you're chasing even if you know, like, oh, wait, the expectation right now is that I'm not in the lead to being in the lead. And now you're like, okay, what do I do with this kind of a mentality? Yeah, but yeah. yeah, did you so when, when you took the lead that early, were you just like kind of doing? Do you continuing to just do like kind of status checks frequently as to like, okay, is this effort actually right? Or am I now kind of artificially pushing subconsciously, because I know there's people behind me? Uh, how did that kind of play out?
2: Yeah, no, um, for sure. And I, I always, uh, use the mantra, check yourself before you wreck yourself. You know, you, you gotta like kind of be checking in and early on and being very honest about like, is the pace that you're running early going to be something that you can run late? And, you know, it still felt really easy to me. The one thing that, that did throw me off is, um, I actually had chugged a big insurer at Robinson flat and like two miles outside of Robinson flat, I just totally puked everything. And I think it was just because it was a little bit warm and it wasn't sitting in my stomach really well. And I um, was not a person who usually threw up in races. So that took me kind of as a shock. It was like, uh oh, like what's happening? And the funny thing was is though once I threw up, like I felt immediately better. And all of a sudden I felt so light. And then like a couple miles after that, I passed Joel Vaught and actually took took the lead. And it was like, oh, I, I just feel light and like this is easy right now. So um yeah, it 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 just kind of happened naturally. And it didn't seem like, okay, I've got to I've got to push this. And I actually was planning to run with Joelle for a little bit. And then she was like, okay, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I'll see you later or something like that. And I was like, oh, okay. And so um, no, I didn't feel like it was really like straining to take over and stay in the lead when it first happened.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like you're having one of those days where it's just like you, in the back of your mind, you kind of know like that you have you have some tools you can work with because of how things are playing out. And even if they're, I don't want to call them mistakes, but when you have days where you feel like that, it's almost like things that would present themselves as a mistake in hindsight on lesser years or, or worse races, just don't end up creating problems for you down the road. So you kind of find yourself in a position where like, you know, I think with 100 miles, you're always presented with choices to make. And then it's like, how many times can you make the right choice versus the wrong choice? And then the days that go really well tend to be the ones that you made the right choice more often than not.
2: Yeah. But then you have
0: days like it sounds like you had at Western States where let's say there's three options and all three of them probably work for you that day. So you're just kind of going with with it and enrolling and, and uh, into the lead pretty early.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I never had the split where you look at it and go like, wow, she just destroyed that section, whatever. Mm -hmm. But I also never had the split where it was like, ooh, she had a low during that. It was just very consistent effort throughout the entire day.
0: Mm -hmm. What was it like going through Forest Hill in the lead? Because you had been in the lead for a while at that point. You had gone through the canyon section, which is like a spot I think people are usually... Very tuned into as it can be a spot that sort of chews people up a bit, especially when it's warm. You're coming into Forest Hill, which is one of the more populated aid stations traditionally in the lead. What was your thought process at that point?
2: I mean, that was, that was super exciting just because, you know, there is kind of the crowd and they're cheering. So you get to sort of soak up that that, that time and kind of the, the uh, you know, everybody getting excited for you. But it was actually extra special for me because my kids actually came out and were at Forest Hill. So uh, like I got to, you know, kind of hug them, give them a little kiss and everything and see them there. and And that was kind of fun to be like, hey, you know, like, my family's out here. They get to see me doing this. They they see me leading this, and um, you know, I just it just kind of felt like, you know, I got to share that with them a little bit, and and then have them there, and then also get the energy and and sort of the motivation from them being there as well.
0: Yeah, well, and for them too, because they see you from a whole different angle than any of us watching you as a fan. Because it's like, to them, you're their mom. You're, the, you're their mom. You're also like. You know, making their lunches and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, they think this is crazy.
2: They're like, why is she out there doing that? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think also like
1: for them, probably long term, it probably gives them that like, you know, I think I think as a kid you take away things from what your parents do, right? I mean, it's like that element of persistence, like not giving up, like working hard. I think, you know, kids do emulate all of that from their parents and so I'm sure like in the back of your mind it's like okay I'm out doing this long race but I think they're probably taking away a lot of good qualities which is pretty cool
2: yeah yeah I hope so (laughs) yeah well
1: you have great kids Pam so I'm sure if it all worked it all um clearly they were emulating you yeah
0: (laughs) um I want to talk a bit about just like the logistics of kind of both the race itself, as well as the preparation for it, because you know, obviously you won the race. So things went well to, to to a large degree in the preparation phase and then the race execution itself. But when I talk about Western States with some of my coaching clients who do that race, I usually start with saying, well, think of Western States as kind of three unique 50 Ks where like you're kind of in a situation where there's enough variance from one section to the next that if you're really really good at one type of running and maybe worse at another you've got to be aware of that and make sure you're not overextending in the spots where you're going to have some weaknesses or you know leaving something on the table during your strength sessions or strength areas and things like that just know like what is going to work for you at the individual level with that kind of unique build out versus like someone who maybe has the opposite set of strengths and weaknesses. Uh, when you decided to do, well, first of all, I ask, how did you get back into Western States? Cause obviously you didn't race back the year before, but.
2: Uh, no. So I went to run rabbit run, which at the time was a golden ticket race. Oh. And I um, said that I was going to give myself one shot to get in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't going to ask for any favors or any sp- Sponsorships or anything. I was going to go to one race, and if it was meant to be, it was meant to be. And I ended up winning Run Rabbit Run and got the golden ticket. So then that's how I got in. So I was like, okay, it's meant to be. That that was kind of the sign that, <laughs> like, I, I should go back to Western States. Um, so that was in September. So I actually had um, a pretty good like uh, advanced notice that I was going to be in. You know, even more so than the people getting in through the lottery and stuff. So mm-hmm. I had a, a long time to to get up to that. Um, once I did get in, I, I, it was clear to me that like, in order to do the race correctly, Western States had to be my primary focus for the year. So unlike 2012, where we had the hundred K world championships in April, um, in other years I had run, you know, either Miwok or American river. I was like, I'm not going to do any major races in April or May and like, just have that whole time to be training. And so I think that was something that was really helpful to me as well. was like, you know, now there's so many races and people are kind of trying to fit in a hundred different things or, you know, even using races for training and stuff, which, which I still like to do, but like, I just didn't want to do a a big effort, long race in the like two, three months leading up to Western States.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's great. You get it in September. You can really kind of start building things out early and like like, yeah, that's the biggest thing with Western States is it's like, Unless you get in early enough through either the lottery or one of the early golden ticket races, you're sitting in a situation where you sort of have to plan two years. And if you get in, kind of pivot towards that. If you don't, then, you know, maybe find something comparable in a similar timeline so your training doesn't deviate too much from what was before. Uh, When did you say like, okay, this is, or did you, I should even say, like, did you say like, okay, this is Western States starts now preparation for it? Was that after the new year at some point, or were you already starting to put things in place as at the end of 2012?
2: Yeah. um, Right about the new year was about right. Um, I did run desert solstice, um, in 2012. And, um, so I kind of took some downtime after that for a couple of weeks and then, you know, the holiday season and everything. And so kind of coming back new years and I've never been a streak runner. I've always felt like I need to take a day off whenever I need a day off. And I haven't wanted to have that obligation or pressure, but I started on January 1st and I was like, I'm just going to run at least three miles a day for as long as it feels right. And, Uh, You know, and so that kind of kicked things off. And I was like, I just need to get into the habit of running every single day and the mindset that like, I'm going to be training hard pretty much every single day. And so, I I mean, I only made it 78 days, which is not uh, impressive in terms of streak uh, stuff, but I did, I think, put me in that mindset of like, okay, every day is a day that you get up and you focus on training and, um, and then kind of coming off the 78 days of that was, um, about the time where I was like getting into the um, higher mileage and doing stuff. So like I I like to have a built in, you know, a time that I can rest if need be. So um, I think it kind of transitioned from sort of low mileage consistently to then getting ramping up to the higher mileage weeks.
1: I love that you say that, that you're not afraid to take a day off. You you give me hope because this week I was sick and I took a couple of days off. And I just like the older I get, the less guilty I feel um, just simply because it just feels like you need to recover. And if you don't give yourself the time, um, but it's always nice hearing somebody else say it right when. Um, yeah.
2: And you know, my, my peak three weeks, I had this, this goal, this lofty goal that I was going to do three, 100 mile weeks in a row. I just thought that that would be like peak training and I made it the first 20 days. And I had the final Sunday, I had 13 miles to go. So I was at 287 miles for 20 days and I got up and I was like, I do not feel right. I don't Mm -hmm. want to run. And so instead of doing that 13 miles, I, I went back to bed that afternoon, and I slept for three and a half hours. And I took that day off. So like my, uh, you know, I, I never made it, I didn't make the goal. But I think by doing that rest and taking that nap, like that actually was what I really needed at that time. So I mean, I was kind of in tune to the idea that like, yes, I'm pushing hard, I'm training hard, but like, you don't want to go overboard with that. So yeah, I think when you get to those days where you're just like, I, I need the rest more than the run, like, you probably do, (laughs) you know, and I try to listen.
1: No, I think that's so, that's so wise. And I, um, I think so many runners fall trap of like feeling like they have to stick to the plan, right. Even when they're not feeling good. And I, I think that's to the detriment of their success, because I do think like from a longevity perspective, having the kind of the mindset that I'm going to take the rest that I need is so critical. Um, but it's, it's nice to hear you say that. Did you have any specific workouts that you relied on that you felt like were kind of confidence builders?
2: Yeah. So I I like to do one workout on the treadmill and, um, I just do three quarters of a mile at 10% grade and it's only at 10, um, 10 minute mile pace. So it's, it's not like you're busting it, but I try to do five of those, uh, with like a quarter mile, just rest in between them, but it just feels like if I can do that, I can plod up the hills of Western States. Like some of the, um, grade and the uphills at Western States are very runnable if you have the running legs. And so for me, that kind of made me feel like my uphill legs were, were strong and could kind of take on some of those sections, you know, like bath road and, uh, come mm-hmm. and, um, coming out of Michigan bluff and kind of some of those roads and, and, you know, you can make up a lot of time if you're at, actually able to run those sections. Um, and then I was also doing hill hikes on Fridays. I would just hike up hills and then run down them hard. And I think the downhills, you know, just doing that downhill kind of gets you, um, sort of this, you know, season, the quads kind of like people say, um, so It it wasn't really that intense of a workout because I'm not really pushing myself that hard. I was really just walking up the hills, but then to get that sort of that pounding on the quads. So those two things I was kind of doing weekly as sort of uphill and downhill uh, type of um, like workouts to be ready for the hills.
0: So Nicole, you've got two options now to build into your plan. One is the treadmill, which is a quarter mile away. And the other is Hill of Life. You can hike up that and run down and get that eccentric downhill and that good hiking up at that spot or somewhere similar to that. I think those are- Yes,
2: I mean, I live- I live in Salem and so like it's 250 feet elevation. And so like the hill that I was hiking was only a half mile long. It's not like on a weekly basis, I could get to the mountains. I was trying to do that on the weekends, but you know, my daily stuff was not on gnarly terrain. And that's why for me, I had to, you know, employ the treadmill and employ just this little half mile hill in town kind of thing. And I think it gains 350 feet and a half a mile or something. It's not anything that's, and it's paved. It's not, it's not a crazy hill or anything but like just finding the things, the tools that you can and using them, um, you know, you can get pretty far with that if you're creative.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's helpful. And that's kind of something that I feel like is consistent with kind of where we live here in Austin. It's we have some, you know, decent rolling hills, but it's definitely not a no, three um, mile climb. It's yeah. yeah, not really the mountainous terrain, um, but I can just picture our little pup mini running down the hill of life, dragging me along. So <laughs> I'm sure that will be great for, um, for me. For She's this.
0: the one who wins in this big yeah. time <laughs> one way or the other. Yes. She's yeah. like, don't go, go to the treadmill. What are you talking about? Yeah.
1: <laughs> she is like a built in um, running partner who. I, I can't tell you how much the little dog loves to run. So
2: oh that's awesome.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I am, I'm, I'm curious too about just the the kind of the trajectory throughout the new year through the race itself. I know you mentioned the treadmill workout and then the the hill workout stuff that were kind of some cornerstone ones that you were doing around. Were you doing anything unique with like intensity-based workouts in terms of like an order of which you did them? Um I know like within ultra running, I mean, personally, I think with ultra running, like when you get into the hundred mile distance, it's like, it's, it's just a unique experience given how low intensity it is relative like Olympic distance stuff. There's probably multiple pathways that are going to get you there in a lot of cases, but one of those that I've leaned on a fair bit and I know others have in the past has been kind of moving Uh, Some workouts that you'd maybe consider important, but less specific to the intensity that you'd be doing on race day earlier in the plan so that when you get to that kind of final phase, you can kind of push your training load towards more like it sounds like you were doing with those higher volume weeks at the end of it and kind of have that space to be able to do more race specific type intensities as you get closer to it. Were you working on anything like that? Or did you come into that training plan with a lot of speed work because of World 100Ks a year before and thought I can lean on that? Or what was your kind of mindset around that?
2: Yeah, so you mentioned how you broke Western states up into 350Ks. And I kind of when I was doing my training, broke it up more into the components. And you know, the first component being it's a hundred miles, you know, that's mm-hmm. a that's a long way to go in the endurance component. And then of course the hill component, which I sort of already addressed, and then kind of the management and the extras, you know, like the weather, the eating, uh, altitude, those kind of things. So those were sort of my three focus points when I was training. For the 100 miles and like just getting to that, for me, the main goal was amassing fitness. Just like if you're fit and you have a lot of endurance, you're going to do well at 100 miles. You know, that was kind Mm -hmm. of kind of my mindset going in with that. So I actually was doing um, Monday's track workouts with um, Marathon Group, you know, and they're just road and I did whatever they did and I didn't make it specific to my race or whatever, but it was kind of this idea that if I'm getting fitter, if I'm getting faster, if my recovery is getting better, all of that is going to help me in the end when I get to a hundred miles. And so it was kind of just this like goal for for general fitness. And so, yeah, I was doing some like marathon type track workouts. And then I I didn't, I'm not a back-to-back person. Like I don't do back-to-back long runs. I was doing a long run on Saturdays. And then I would do on Wednesdays, what I would call a midweek medium. And so something like in the 12 to 15 mile range. And I would usually do a couple of miles of tempo in there just to kind of boost the sort of the bang for my buck in that, in that workout, um, to get a little bit more, uh, in, endurance out of it.
0: Nicole's grinning from ear to ear right now. Cause she joins mm-hmm. a, a road running group uh, a couple times a week. And one of those days is a workout day where they're typically doing something in preparation for like half or full marathon type yeah. stuff. So yeah, it it's, it's funny. Cause like one thing I think we learned over the pandemic about Nicole was for her to just kind of, uh, not focus on, the part of ultra running that I think catches everyone's eye at first, like, oh, I'm running hundred miles. So I gotta just get out there and run all the time. I gotta do like countless hours, big weekends, the cold, the whole kind of like go big or go home type of mentality. And really realize that like speed work for a good chunk of the early phase of her training really did put her in a position where when we do get to the point where like say you're six weeks out from the race, now maybe we get out on the course and do some longer efforts and lean a little more into volume. Uh, Just so you feel confident and you can really feel the pacing and everything like that and work on the nutrition and work on like what gear you're going to use and all that stuff. Uh, And you always find that you get quite fit with that that path.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, I have to say, I like the social aspect of like training with my friends, right. To do the workouts with them. Um, so there's that element that I think is helpful. And just, I happen to have a friend who I ran with in college who now like we're reunited after 20 years. So it's kind of fun to like, um, get to train with her, but Pam, I don't know, like the older I get, I just don't like spending oodles of hours, like, doing really long runs on the trails all the time. Like I can I can't find joy in that as much. I mean, I can definitely um, enjoy it for, you know, a couple of months at a time, but then I like to go back to more moderate stuff. So, you make me feel better about that because I just I I don't know, on my weekends, like I almost just need the time to just recover from the the work week, right? And so yeah. that that makes me feel better.
2: Well, and I've never done a training run longer than 30 miles. Like I've done some adventure run, like sometimes I'll fit the adventure runs in or you get a race for 50 miles or something like that to have the, the ones in there. But to me, I feel like I get everything I need out of 30 miles. You know, I can practice my eating. I can have the fitness, whatever. And I don't need to slog it out for 40 or 50 to, to feel that. I just feel like I get more tired from that and more mentally drained from that. So um, I wasn't like the person that, you know, power to you if people are doing that, but like, I didn't feel like that was a necessary part of my training to just, just do like an all day 50 miler or whatever
1: yeah no Mm -hmm. that's so nice to hear because
2: (laughs) (laughs) i just i can't
1: stomach that kind of stuff anymore um and it doesn't really bring me joy either yeah yeah like i go in a hole so that's that's great to hear
0: it's it's a really interesting topic too because i think like i don't think there's anything inherently wrong with back-to-back long runs but where i think a lot of people go wrong with it is it's not unique to the race intensity so they do the back-to-back framework but they're running significantly faster than they're going to be on the day that they run 100 miles. So they're really not even practicing what they'll be doing on race day to a close enough degree where it's going to do them the favors they want. And then back-to-back long runs faster than goal 100-mile intensity is going to take future training off your plan for the most part. So you have to be asking yourself what's the what is the trade-off to do this. So like when when I'm working with someone if it's like we really want that. This person just needs some experience working with some of the like longer duration type stuff from fueling gear, just knowing on that second day, they can go out and cover some ground or some time on feet just to confirm in their mind, okay, I can wrap my head around this. Cool. But if they're out there running four or five minutes per mile faster than they're going to average on race day, we're missing out on something down the road in most cases there. So it's like, If that person isn't going to be able to hold back and do it like that, then it's like they're much better off doing just a typical probably marathon long run style and kind of carrying on that way and accumulating that training load over the course of their plan versus sacrificing future training.
2: Yeah, no. Not, I'm not speaking out against back to backs as something that people yeah. should do but it just didn't work for me you know I had a family mm-hmm. and to to sacrifice right. both weekend days was just not something that I could do and feel good about like so Sundays and because I was like I said doing this marathon track stuff we were doing that on Mondays <laughs> if I did that on uh you know if I did back to backs then I I would I wouldn't make it through the track workout so Sunday mm-hmm. was just a really good day for me to take off like that was my rest day or at least the very easy day for me. It left me sort of um, kind of recovered to start the new week. And it also gave me a time to like, hang out with family and, and mm-hmm. be able to do that. Um, but you know, kind of like what you're saying about, you know, new people, if they need the, the second day to kind of give them confidence, like, I truly believe in that, like, the training that you need is the training that gives you the confidence to feel like you have the training you need, you know, and so like, for me, I just knew that like going through a 30 miler, doing all of the eating stuff, like when your stomach starts to turn at, you know, 20 miles or you hate a gel after five or six hours, but you have to force yourself to eat something like that was easier for me to practice in one long run, rather than like having the reset of the next day where, Mm -hmm. you know, your stomach is better. Your outfit is better. You're not sweaty anymore. You're not hot anymore. And so it was kind of like all of the like, uh a- additional things of ultra running were easier to practice for, or are better to practice in one long run. And so that's that's for me, like between that and my family, like that's kind of how it boiled down to me. I think some people like the back to backs and yeah. that gives them the confidence and and like you said, it teaches them to do the things that they need. And so yeah, like whatever works again, it's kind of like, are you amassing the fitness that you need to get to a hundred miles? And are you amassing the confidence that you need to be able to do that hundred miles?
1: I, I love that you say that because I think it just depends on what makes you excited, right, for training. Because I know, like, it also, we've been in times, I mean, earlier. Um, when I was um, training for Western States 10 years ago, right? Or yeah, not quite 10 years ago, eight years ago, right? It's like, I was doing more of the back-to-back long runs, right? Like I was doing more marathon type, like I'll just do a 20 mile long run on the roads and then 18 miles the next day once in a while. But it was mostly because I was stuck on the roads. I didn't have access to trail in Dallas and things like that. And so, you know, I think it also just kind of depends on like the space you're in, right? What makes you excited for training? training so I love that you say that because I think you can evolve a lot as a person over time and with that it's your running probably evolves as 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 well right like what makes you excited to get out there and be prepared um that's that's pretty good to hear yeah
0: yeah it's such a great point too because I think like what you highlighted there is like so much of this is somewhat irrelevant if you don't start with what do you actually have available that's sustainable within the context of your lifestyle. And it's like if 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 you had decided, you know what, I'm going to go out on Saturday and Sunday and even go very very easy and just spend three, four, maybe five hours out there on both days and do that even for a semi frequent time frame, but then your family hates you on Sundays for like <laughs> a growing number of weeks and those track workouts start becoming more like nauseating than they are beneficial. So you just start cr- building up so many negatives and trying to live such an incons an unsustainable lifestyle for you that you're not doing, even if that was like the perfect plan on paper, it wasn't for you. So what's the point of even trying to force it at that point?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so I kind of just, tried to do the things that sort of fell into place and that, like Nicole was saying, that just felt good and felt right.
0: And and clearly it was the right plan because it's, you know, yeah. you finished first. So there's not really a whole lot of room to improve upon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: am, I, I am curious because I know you were working at the time and you had kids, which is just like, you know, that's a lot. Um, tell us more about like balance, because there's this concept of like balance. And I think there's kind of like, It's an interesting word because it's almost like, do you want to be balanced or do you want to ensure that certain aspects are are highlighted for various parts of the week, right? And then you, I'm just curious, like your thoughts on that and how you kind of accomplished it all, but
2: yeah. I mean, everybody's got limited time in the week, right? It's a finite number of hours that you right. have to work with. And so, I mean, you kind of have to say, where are you going to distribute those hours? And, you know, some things are going to get pushed to the side and some things you're going to spend the time on. You know, for me, work was non-negotiable. Like I had to go to work or I was going to get fired. Mm. Um, right. you know, family was kind of non negotiable. Like I needed to be there for my family. And then, you know, I wanted to get the running in. Um, but that was probably probably the most negotiable of them, you know, and so if I had to tweak things here or there, like that was sort of my hobby or, or whatever, you know, voluntary thing so um, that was a little bit sometimes like I would say I'd have to alter or tweak things but You know, and everything else for me kind of got pushed off. Like I wasn't a TV watcher. I read way fewer books than I would like to admit. You know, I didn't socialize with a lot of stuff. I didn't go see movies, and those were the things that I didn't. You know, I didn't have time for on my schedule. So, um, you you know, you can't you can't balance everything, right? Some of the things have to get kind of pushed off, and you have to acknowledge that. Um, But the biggest thing for me, I think, to get the running in to make sure that I didn't have to sacrifice the training. I had to get up early. Like I was an early person and I had to get up. Um, pretty much every workday I would get up at at 420 and be out the door and be running by five. 5 a.m. Um, and just get it done before work. I wasn't a twice a day person. Um, for me, again, it was like I needed to get the run done, and I just didn't have the time to commit to doing something in the evening because the evening hours was like when I needed to spend the time with with family, um, and I didn't really have time at lunch at work to you know get a lunch run in or something. So I just tried to get you know one solid workout in in the morning, check it off the list as first thing in the morning, and then kind of be done with it and have the rest Rest of my day, sort of dedicated to work and family, and then, like I said, you know, Sundays I really tried to focus on on doing something. Like after my long run on Saturday, I pretty much could do you know whatever I wanted with the family. I might do a little easy run on Sunday, but nothing that took an extraordinary amount of time away or like really prevented us from doing something together. So,
0: yeah, it's interesting to hear you explain that because I think it's just an interesting mindset where. It's like you, you, you listed some of the things that you sacrificed in order to make this happen. And, you know, there was two major things that just weren't even options on the table. So that left room for your training preparation, but it came at the cost of a lot of your other hobbies and interests yeah. that, that, you know, like, it's one of those things where it's like, you pick a block of time in life, like, I'm going to really focus on this goal at Western States for this few months. And I'm going to put these other things on the back burner for now. And obviously come back to them later. So there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but you also have this like very finely developed schedule where, you know, when that alarm clock goes off at 4:20 in the morning, in your mindset, it's not like, uh, you know what, maybe I should push this to the afternoon or maybe I should just sleep in a little bit. And then, you know, you start my day an hour later, it was like, it's now where it's not happening. And I think that that mindset is really interesting, at least for like a time frame of just getting so disciplined leading into the race itself, where now you sort of have this lifestyle. And I've talked to Nicole about this before, because like we've mentioned her, her lifestyle is similar in the sense that she's got a demanding job. So like things have to happen when they can happen. There's not a lot of flexibility outside of it to some degree. And it's like, sometimes I think you're training a mental component that as long as it doesn't just completely exhaust you from like, you, if you don't get overwhelmed by it in the process and it comes at you at a sustainable enough rate where you actually get good at it. By the time that race comes around, you're so mentally able to just tackle a very long day that it may actually help with that side of things. What are are your thoughts about kind of that mental side and how that actually plays out
2: yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that's true. You know, you've, if you've put so much of yourself into it, then you, you really want to focus on that race and, and have that, that race go as well as, as you can, because you're like, wow, I, I did make all these sacrifices for it. The other thing I find is kind of the mental side is, you know, a lot of people say they hate tapering. And like, by the time I get to the taper, I'm like, oh, hallelujah.
0: <laughs> like, movies. <laughs>
2: like, I don't have to get up at 4.30 this morning. I can get up at 5.30 because I'm only running four miles or whatever it is. So like I I think that kind of helps too, to sort of uh, like just have that, that mental um, like reset before the race starts with the taper is you're kind of ready for it. And so it's not like you're waiting around antsy or or kind of like angry because you have to taper. So I always like that part of it as well. <laughs> yeah.
1: I I don't know. I don't know if you feel this way, Pam, but I almost feel like I tend to have less time to worry about the race, like the busier I get, especially with work things, because it's like, oh, there's another like fire going off over here (laughs) with work things. It's like, it almost just like takes a back seat. And then by the time the race comes, it's like, well, I didn't have to give it a lot of mental energy because I, I mean, I just was focused on other things.
2: But I think what you said, Zach, about like not having the choice like that in a lot of ways made it easier because like you said, it was like, I'm going to get up and run or I'm not going to run. And so there is no choice. It's like if I want to do the training, I have to do it. And I actually am struggling more now that I'm basically not working to get all my runs in because it's like just like you said, Oh, should I get up? Should I do it in the afternoon? Should I go a little later? Oh, I don't have friends to run with. And you, you kind of like start bargaining with yourself. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. I don't really have to do 10 today. I could just do six today. And, you know, for, for Western States, it was kind of like, Nope, I'm going to get up. I'm going to do 10. And that's, that's the end of it. Like there's no, there's no question and stuff. And so in some ways that actually takes less mental energy as well, because it's like the decisions are already laid out for you.
0: hmm yeah, I think when, when I was still teaching full-time, I was started to recognize that like ahead of time to summer because I had summers basically free. So like I would get a taste of what it would be like to like just train and race and get an idea what that lifestyle is like where you have that open schedule and you can move things around. Like whether I ran in the morning or the afternoon or the evening was like sort of up to me. And one thing I recognized from that was like, I need to, if if there aren't firm like, the parameters in place, you need to put them there to some yeah. degree, at least. Uh, or you're going to end up like what you were saying, just saying, oh, you know, well, I can just push this. And then it either doesn't happen or happens at like a diminished quality or something like that. Cause you just decided to do it at a time that just ended up not being the right time to do it. And yeah. And then when I ended up stepping away from teaching and building my own business, it was like, that was another transition where it's like, I had this like semi-flexible schedule where I can. Still, like, I can move things around a lot easier than I could when I was teaching, but I still definitely need to have some structure that I hold myself accountable to in order to make sure that there's a semblance of that, like, here's the window of time you have to train. If you pass up on this window, it's off the table, so you have that little bit of sense of urgency to make sure you're kind of staying organized and on task and all that stuff, and it's it's a good message, I think, to hear.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
0: Um, one thing I wanted to get into, and I'm sure Nicole is too, and this is something I think we can probably improve on a little bit at Western States this year, based on what we've done in the past is just the topical cooling side of stuff. Um, I know like you wrote a, a really, uh, popular article in the ultra running circles after the race about how you went about preparation for the race day in terms of trying to stay cool, despite it being hot. Uh, When did that process begin? Because I'm sure it wasn't something you just started doing on race day. What were you doing in training to get yourself ready to kind of manage the heat?
2: Yeah. So I, I don't probably do the same type of heat training that, um, a lot of people do. I have never gone in a run on, in a puffy coat. I don't wear multiple layers, you know, in fact, in Oregon, most of the time in the spring, it's quite pleasant to run and it's not, it's not hot at all. Um, for me, the majority of heat training is just sauna in the three weeks leading up to the race. So I just do the three weeks of sauna trying to get up to about 45 minutes of time. I do all passive sauna training. You know, some people do the active, like you're doing jumping jacks or jogging, or that's the same thing as going for a run in a puffy coat. And for me, like I felt like my workouts were better if I just could run them at the temperature that I was most comfortable at. Like I didn't want to sacrifice a workout, you know, running at 110 degrees in a puffy coat. Um, I just felt like I couldn't run that well. And so I would just get my body temperature up from the run and then go straight to the sauna and just sit in the sauna for, you know, as long as I could handle it and kind of read stupid magazines or whatever, you know, people magazine was a favorite because you didn't have to concentrate on it. Uh <laughs> But, but my biggest thing was on race day management. And, you know, I, this sounds stupid, but like, it, it's really true is like, you want to get cool before you get hot. And so, you know, you want to start cooling yourself off. Like you don't want to be overheated and then say, okay, it's time to cool myself off. You, you got to start early and not get to that point where you're overheated. And so, uh, coming in, I think it's, uh, Duncan Canyon, it's like nine o'clock in the morning. And I already was starting with ice. Like I had ice down my shirt, in my hat. I had it in my bottles. I had an extra bottle. Um, I, I froze most of my bottles the night before. So I had frozen bottles that I could put in my pack and or like half frozen bottles. And so like the cold ice against my chest while I was carrying water um, was also a cooling agent. Um, and then every single water stop was like, get in and, um, and then, uh, you know, get, don't just get wet, like get cool, like make sure you're in the water till you're cool and you know you really feel like okay now i'm i'm a little chilled and then you're getting out because that's what's bringing your body temperature down you know a little splash of water here and there isn't gonna do anything um and then i ran with a huge ice bandana and i put it in front a lot of people i know tie it and put it behind their back Um, but for me i put it in front and i just tucked it under the strap of my vest and because then it was on my heart and the heart is where all your blood is going through and so it was cooling my blood as it was you know sitting on my heart there, sitting on my chest. So I felt like that was um, like more significant cooling. Um, and so, and then, you know, I, I guess that the sort of the more infamous one is the cotton t-shirt. I, I did wear the cotton t-shirt. Um, I knew I wanted to be as wet as possible for as long as possible. And the whole reason that people have gotten away from cotton is because cotton holds so much water. It holds your sweat in, but to me, it was like on race day, that was going to be a benefit. I wanted it to hold as much water as possible. I wanted it to stay really wet. And, you know, I had a lot of people after the race that told me things like you were the wettest person out there. You <laughs> all, never looked dry. You always were soaking. You looked like a drowned rat, you know, all the, all the things. And I think you're starting to see that more and more. Mm-hmm. I think people are embracing that at Western States. But back 10 years ago, like, I, I, I mean, I, I kind of think that I was sort of like leading the, mo- the movement in getting like just soaking wet and staying soaking wet for the entire race. And unfortunately to manage the heat, that's kind of what you have to do is just be really wet and really cool for as long as possible.
0: Yeah. I mean, you were the first person I heard actually make that like a focal point, you know, you get whether people were doing it or not, it's like, they weren't highlighting it as a piece to their puzzle, to the degree that I think you did And I found that interesting. And you're right. I think now, 10 years later, we're seeing companies build products specifically for, I mean, you built all your stuff to do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I
2: I sewed my bandana. I sewed a, a pouch in my sports bra. I did all kinds of silly things. But yes, now there's products for that.
0: yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I wonder, and I actually wonder about the trajectory of that too, because I think there's still a lot of growth with that, where you can get like real form fitting, like articles of clothing that are just very, very convenient to either. And maybe it's not even ice at some point where it's something that can maintain a coolness for longer that um, is built right into something. And it's just, yeah, who knows where that'll go if the demand for it gets to to a point where uh, people are winning or losing races based on it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I do think that, uh, to some degree they will be only because I think staying cool and keeping your body temperature down is going to be a way to maximize performance. So yeah. I mean, somebody who's overheating is not going to be able to give their best, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: but yeah. I I mean, like you said, 10 years ago, I mean, I watched people go into the aid station and I commented on this after the race too. Like people would go in, they'd grab one sponge, go like, and there'd be like five drops of water (laughs) fall on them. And then they'd run out. Yeah. And I was like taking a bath in the sponge buckets. I was like, you know, like bathing around, mm-hmm. getting it all over me and stuff. And I'd be like, how are these people going with like one sponge of water? And so I do think, yeah, now there's kind of like the dunk the dunk method. And I think that's a, a good start, but you know, also um, using the ice and, and sort of like other cooling ways to stay as cool as possible um, yeah. is kind of going to help, especially on the hot years and 2013 was one of the hottest, you know, so uh, it, it was particularly important then.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you, were the, the creeks were full that year?
2: Yeah, I mean, there was, yeah, there were places that you could definitely get in the water. Um, you know, I know when you go down like uh cow street, whatever, there's like a little like kind of well, that's all like yeah. got <laughs> Like got moss and other grime and that. And I stuck my head in that, you know, like, it's probably not the most sanitary thing to do, but like, it worked in terms of staying cool.
0: Yeah, I'll deal with this virus on Monday. Yeah. That's awesome. Nicole, what do you what are your thoughts about topical cooling? Oh, I I
1: appreciate hearing all of Pam's tricks. I mean, I think um, I've been fortunate to receive some of the support from others like Meredith, who's close to Pam, who's probably learned all the tricks and in, in you but I definitely have a lot that I could do better so. I could also um, be better at carrying bottles into the canyons and things like that. So I have a lot that I could improve upon. So
2: yeah, I mean, t- you talked about carrying the bottle. So I had a pack that I was drinking mm-hmm. from, I actually carried an extra bottle um, that was yes. start, you know, had some ice in it because one cooling on your hands helps you to feel cooler. You also have a lot yeah. of blood that comes through your hands. So that was a, another way to, you know, just Just by carrying cold bottles helps you to cool off. But then I had that extra bottle that I would use as a, just as a head bottle. And so I'd have the extra water that when you're halfway up to Robinson flat and you're baking in the sun, you know, you had an extra bottle that you could pour over your head. Um, and I would fill that bottle up with at streams and stuff and carry it. And so a couple miles down the road, I could still get myself wet even when I wasn't near a Creek. No,
1: I love that you say that. For me, it's like thinking, it's like, maybe I'll carry more of a pack this time and really just pack it with ice even because I just um, definitely good to be thinking through all of this.
0: There, there's a funny Nicole Western State story around this topic, which is why I always her about it, where there was one year I was crewing and pacing for her and we would had to been at 38, mile 38, you're going to head into the canyons. And like I was living in just outside of Sacramento at the time, so I'd hang out with all the like Auburn Western States folks, and they'd have all the stories and all that. You got to do this, got to do that. You know, they had it on lockdown, so they would always tell me, "You do not go into the canyons without two bottles." At no point, it's like that's a death wish to go into the canyons without two bottles. So I'm convinced. I'm like, okay, make sure Nicole goes into the canyons with two bottles. Nicole hates two bottles. I didn't so that she, goes I said, <laughs> she goes into the aid station and she goes in the aid station. I've got the bottles ready. And I'm like, I, I finally convinced her. I'm like, take the second bottle. So she's like, okay, fine, I'll take it. She grabs the bottle, turns around to go out the aid station, gets about four feet away from me, drops the second bottle and just takes off. <laughs> and, and I look over at one of the guys who's at the aid station, who happened to be one of the people from Auburn that was telling me that. And he just looks at me. He's like, well, you tried. <laughs> she ended up finishing sixth. So it wasn't like... I just, I, I couldn't no, really give her too much. I've got to do the it.
1: packs, I think, because I can't carry two bottles. It's like, for whatever reason, that just like gets at me. I, there's no words. I don't know why I can't handle it. I just.
2: Oh, I don't want to carry two yeah, bottles either, but to have two bottles for sure. Yeah. I think I would have two bottles, like one in each side of the pack and then yeah, a, a hand. So I had three for a lot I of the time, it was I super hot. That. And one of them was only just for, you know, like dunking and getting wet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good. I think that
1: one gets empty pretty soon. I
2: I don't know. I feel like off kilter or
1: something. It's just a me problem. It's no (laughs) one else. I just, I don't know.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well, Pam, this has been awesome to hear like your, both your experience as an ultra runner on the first episode of this two part, uh, series. And then, uh, your, your kind of deep dive into Western States and then kind of went into that. I think it's, uh, really fun to hear what what was working for you across a variety of different kind of ultra marathons and lifestyle things to kind of make it all work. And then, yeah, everything that kind of went into 2013. So thanks so much for giving us some time to to chat about this.
2: Yeah. Thanks for having me and good luck, Nicole. Thank you, Pam.
0: Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors are my friends at LMNT Electrolytes. They have a wide range of electrolyte supplements and are currently offering listeners this podcast a free sample pack with purchase. If you are interested in checking them out and letting them know that you came to them through here, you can go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO or to the show sponsor landing page, which is just zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Links to that are in the show notes as well. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter.